second coming of Christ. And um, I wanted to bring up a person that I had brought up once before. Um, There are many, if you look on the internet, of people who have made predictions about what happens in the end. There are many who have made predictions. Harold Camping was the president of Family Life Radio, and it broadcasted over 150 markets throughout the U.S. He also hosted a show in which he would answer Bible questions. If he would have stuck to what the Bible says, he would have been remembered as a godly Bible teacher. But instead, he tried to predict the date of the second coming of Christ, the end times, and now he's always going to be remembered as a false prophet, because that's what he is. He predicted the second coming of Christ would take place September 6, 1994. And when it had failed to occur on that date, he changed the date to September 29th. And when it didn't happen then, he changed it to October 2nd. And apparently Harold Camping doesn't watch baseball because three strikes and you're out. He made another prediction. He said it would happen on May 21st, 2011. There would be a rapture. And his tribulation was five months long in which millions of people would die each day when the final end would come October 21st, 2011. Interestingly, he resigned from his position five days before that date. But a year later, he did admit his prediction was sinful, and he quoted this verse in Matthew 24, verse 36. He read, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. So that's a good thing. He did pass away the very next year. But as I said, he's not the only one to make these predictions of the end times. When will the end come? So it brings this question for us as Christians. Who can you trust? Who can you believe when it comes to the end times? And I know of only one source that is trustworthy. The Bible. The Holy Bible. The Bible is inerrant. That means it's without error. And you say, well, how is that possible? How is it possible that a Bible that's written by men could be without error? And that's because it wasn't really written by men. Peter clears this up in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 1, 21. He says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God moved the men who moved the pen. That's how I always remember it. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if you trust God, then you can trust his words, the Bible. That's what you're reading. When you read the Bible, you're reading God's, you're listening to God speak to you. Now, the Bible has lots of prophecies, as you know. Scholars say that there's over 300 specific prophecies pertaining to the coming Messiah, or the Messiah, the one who will save the world. And so far, according to the New Testament that we have, Jesus is batting a thousand. He's fulfilled all of the prophecies that he was to fulfill at this time. But there's more, because we have the second coming of Christ. There's more for him to fulfill. The Bible does not... Uh, say a little about end times. 
says a lot. It says a lot about end times. It's also known as eschatology or judgment day, day of reckoning, doomsday, day of the Lord, lots of names for end times. But today my focus is going to be on what did Jesus say, and specifically it's in Matthew 24 and 25. That's what will be in the text, mainly Matthew 24 and 25. If you would like a Bible, you don't have one, there's probably one in a chair in front of you. They're yours to keep. Um, we have someone that generously donates them, and so we keep uh, the, the chairs filled with the Bibles. There's some in the back shelf as well. We're in the harmony of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, harmonized together, and Jesus is in the last week of his life. We're progressing to Easter and, and going to time it out that way. Um, that's what I had planned to do months ago. And here we are on what I call Teaching Tuesday. Teaching Tuesday. Jesus did a lot of teaching on this Tuesday. And it was right before his crucifixion, and he taught on the Mount of Olives. The scholars call this the Olivet Discourse. And like I said, I planned to preach this months ago, this specific text. I outlined it a long time ago. And this Thursday, Russia invaded the Ukraine. And a friend posted this verse, verse 6, on his Facebook page. He said, you will hear um, of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, but this must take place. The end is not yet. And as I read that, and I thought to myself on Thursday morning, God's timing is amazing. God has this plan. It's all worked out. He knows everything. That I had already planned to to preach on this particular verse, these verses, and here it is. A war breaks out on Thursday, and I'm preaching this on Sunday. God knows everything. He's omniscient. he, He just knows it all. Now, War is a sign of the end times, and if I was a religious nut obsessed with these end times, I would be preaching a doomsday message today, and I'd be trying to scare the H-E double hockey sticks out of you. (laughs) I'm sure pastors today are preaching hellfire and brimstone, but I'm not that pastor. I'm not that pastor. I don't want to instill fear in you. I think the media has done enough of that the last two years with COVID. I'm not going to do that to you. I want to give you hope. I want to show you God's in control. He's got a plan, and you're a part of that plan. Did you know that this morning? You're a part of God's redemptive plan for this world. You never have to fear the end of the world. You never have to fear the end of the world if you are justified by the work of Jesus Christ. We've talked a lot about that in the last few weeks, about being justified by the righteous robe of Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died for your sins. He was buried, but then he was raised to new life. And he sits on the throne next to his Father in heaven today. And if you believe in that work of Jesus Christ, then you have really nothing to fear. Russia attacking Ukraine, you don't have to fear that. You don't have to fear that the end is tomorrow. It's going to come back tomorrow. But when stuff like this happens, it reminds us to go back to the Word, to see what's going to happen, to comfort us. I actually, I'm comforted by what God's word said, what Jesus says here in Matthew 24. He's coming back. 
He's going to rapture his church. He's going to defeat evil. He's going to reign for a thousand years and establish a new heaven and a new earth. And someday he will have a mansion in heaven for all those who put their faith in him. He will have crowns for us and he will have rewards for us for the work that we do here on this earth. And we have a lot of work to do. Don't we? You ever thought to yourself, why, why, why are we waiting? What's taking you so long, God? Why are you taking so long? It's been 2,000 years, man. Come on. Come back, Jesus. I'm tired of this place. Well, 2 Peter 3. Peter tells us, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God is timeless. He doesn't count time like we do. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as we would count slowness. He's patient towards us, because he doesn't wish for any of us to perish, but all should reach repentance. God's patient. He wants to see you and you and you and everyone you know come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. And God has rewards in heaven for us being a part of that work. Let's pray this morning. And Father, as we've prayed so many times, it shows our emphasis and our trust in you. God, we need you. We need you to comfort us right now. We need to know your plan for our lives each day. And Father, as we go and do your work, Father, we need you to guide us and comfort us and help us. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that lives within us. In Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. So in Matthew 24, I'm going to kind of fly through verse 24, hitting some of the verses here, and, and, and explain to you what Jesus was saying to his disciples on this mountain, uh, of, uh, the Mount of Olivet, the Olivet Discourse, the Mount of Olives. Um, he said, verse 3, I'll start there, verse 3. On the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, tell us when, <laughs> tell us when. We're just like the disciples, aren't we? When? Give us the time, Jesus. We want to know. When is it going to happen? And Jesus pointed out some things that would happen to kind of show you that it's the end times. And he, would, he said things like, there will be an increase in false prophets. So I feel like the more people predicting the exact date of the end times is kind of like, okay, you're fulfilling Jesus, what he said. But there will be lots of wars and famines and earthquakes. That's what Jesus said. And then in verse 8, he said, all of these things are the beginning of the birth pains. Now, there are some people that get really emotional when, you know, an earthquake happens or war happens or there's a famine. And they start getting all, you know, in a frenzy. This is it. This is the end. You know, Russia, Ukraine, Jesus coming back. All I can say is, chillax, all right? Just relax. Don't stress yourself out. We do not know when the end is. Jesus, we don't know when he's coming back. It said that in verse 6. We don't know, but we do know how we're supposed to act. You can't read the Bible and miss that. Jesus used many parables to teach two words. Be ready. I mean, that's what Jesus said. You don't know when it's going to happen. Be ready. 
Lots of parables, lots of teachings. When's it going to happen? Tomorrow? I don't know. Next week? I, I don't know. But you know what? I'm going to be ready for tomorrow. I'm going to be ready. That's what he said. So we live every day with purpose. You live a life of purpose. That's catchy. They should, they should, <laughs> should name a church that. Oh, wait, we did that already. You keep reading here, verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, the Jewish disciples. And I believe what he's saying here is to the Jewish people, because he's referring to the seven-year tribulation, which, by the way, Jeremiah said this is the time of Jacob's trouble. Israel, Jacob is Israel. This is the Jewish nation. The, the, the tribulation is all about bringing the nation of Israel back to God. We need to know that, that, that. That's what the tribulation is about. It's for Israel. And Jesus is saying here in Matthew 24 that this tribulation time will be very horrible, ugly. This is going to be bad for the nation of Israel, really bad. Which is really hard to believe because it's already been really bad for the Jewish nation for hundreds of years, hasn't it? I mean, we just have to go back to World War II and know that Hitler, basically, six million Jews, because they're a hated nation, and yet, how do we fathom it's going to be worse in the tribulation for them? But that's what Jesus says. Verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, it's going to be awful. Verse 21. There will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. It will never be worse than the tribulation. If you want all the details of that tribulation time, if you like to dive into that, you like those Stephen King novels, you know? It's a little gory. Read Revelation 6 through 18. You can read all about the tribulation. That, that, I mean, honestly, right there alone, it tells you, you know, I'm not so good at math, but that's about two-thirds of the whole book of Revelation um, dedicated to the tribulation, to seven years of time. Revelation 6. You'll read about seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls of judgment in the worst seven years ever. Now, if you're a pre-trib, you're thankful that you're going to miss that. But if you're a post-trib, you're wishing you, would, you could miss it. Matthew 24, verse 29, immediately after this tribulation time of seven years, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Why? What happens after seven years? The second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is talked about in Revelation 19. When Jesus comes back in Revelation 19, after the tribulation, there's going to be a war. Because for seven years, evil has been winning and causing great, I mean, it, I mean great is not even the word. I, I, I can't even describe it. It's in Revelation 6. It's been horrible. And Jesus is going to come back, and it's going to be the shortest war in history, by the way. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be him defeating the beast, which is the Antichrist, the dragon, which is Satan, and all of the followers, all of those demons, all the followers 
of Christ. Anyone with the mark of the beast, they're all going to be defeated. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness Jesus judges and makes war. And with Jesus, verse 14, is the armies of heaven, that's the church, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, we're following him on white horses. We have our white horses. And from his mouth will come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this is a wonderful, this is what I mean by Jesus wins the, we win in the end. But here we see that the church is a part of this. And I know, man, we get all excited about this because it's like, yeah, we're going to finally kick, we're going to get our sword out, we're going to take some demons' heads off, and we're going we're gonna to do our damage. But guys, I'm sorry, man, we're just here for moral support, okay? Because Jesus <laughs> is going to wield his sword, which is, it says it comes out of his mouth. Now, you know Ephesians 6 the sword is the word of God. Do you realize how powerful God's word is? That Jesus opens his mouth and all evil is done. That's why it's the shortest war in history. Because that's how powerful he is. That's how powerful our God is. And his word is. But at least men will look good on our white horses. Men never saw a mirror they didn't like, right? You ever see a young man walk by a mirror? I used to do that. Nothing left up there. But you'll notice something if you read in Revelation 6 to 18. Where's the church during the tribulation? Where's the church? They're not mentioned because the focus is on Israel. And I believe, as all pre-tribs believe, the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation. You see, the rapture and the second coming of Christ are two separate events. The tribulation occurs in between. And I say that because, well, first of all, I'll tell you what the rapture. In Matthew 24, Jesus describes what happens. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. So stay awake. You don't know on what day your Lord is coming. So the rapture is this this time when Christians, genuine Christians, will be airlifted to heaven. And then the tribulation comes. We're not a part of that. Now there's debate, and I'm sure some of you will want to debate with me after this, and that's fine. We'll talk about it. You show me all the verses that you think show, believe, you know, that's post-tribulation. Or if you think it's in the middle of the tribulation that the church is raptured. I think it's in the beginning. There's a few verses I'll show you right now. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God has not destined us for wrath, meaning the tribulation, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. And then Revelation 3, 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And the last one. I just don't really want to be here for the tribulation. That one doesn't count, but I'm just saying, I don't really want to be here for that, so I lean on the pre-trib side. But those other reasons, I think, point to the rapture coming first. 
then the tribulation, then the second coming, then the thousand-year reign of Christ, then the final judgment of all evil, then the new heaven and the new earth. And if you're afraid to read Revelation, don't be. Read Revelation 19, 20, and 21. That's the good stuff. It's the end. If you don't like the 6 through 18 part. And verses 1 through 5 just talk about the church and how the church is supposed to be acting. Because there's the churches there that, that were doing some good, but not so good. So why is it important you know all this? Why is it, why is it necessary? I, again, mainly because God wins in the end. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing that you've got to always remember. Your battle might be tough right now. You may feel like evil is surrounding you. You may feel like your flesh keeps winning you may be struggling in life. There may be a lot of things going wrong right now for you, but you've got to remember and be encouraged that we win in the end. God wins, and if you're on his side, you win. That's the greatest news. But I think also we need to think about how we're preparing ourselves for heaven. Number one, we've got to be ready, as Jesus said. Always be ready. We're, we're, not, we're, we're not taking off time to go be sinners, all right, and, and do our own thing away from God, okay? Well, we are all sinners, but some of us are saved, and we want to all be saved. But my point is, is we don't take time off from our relationship with God. We, we are, and we prepare ourselves. And when you prepare yourself, I want to tell you about the five crowns. You know about the five crowns in heaven. The five crowns are in Scripture. The first is the crown of righteousness. Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy 4.8. It's called this because you are justified by Christ alone. That's it. Your justification is in Christ alone. Your righteousness is the work of Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that's the crown of righteousness which all those in heaven will have. The second is the imperishable crown. The imperishable crown. 1 Corinthians 9 talks about it. And it, it's a, Paul alluding to the ancient Greek games. When a winner of a contest would put on the crown, it would be a crown of like leaves, basically, and it would be something that was perishable. Eventually it would, you know, once you cut the the, um, you know, cut something from the vine, it's going to eventually die, right? Flowers on your table, uh, if they're in a vase, they're going to eventually die and wilt. And that's what the perishable crown is that a winner of a race would have. But Paul says here that the imperishable crown, the one that we have in heaven, the imperishable crown is your heavenly body. Verse uh, 50, or chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, verse 50 through 53. Do you know about your heavenly body? I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The body you have right now is not going to make it to heaven. It's not. Besides, you don't want it to. It just keeps getting older, right? I mean, you got more aches and pains than ever the older you get. You don't want this body in heaven. Behold, verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, 
and we will be changed. And this perishable body will put on the imperishable. This mortal body will put on the immortal body. Your heavenly body will be amazing. That's the imperishable crown. And then there's the crown of rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians 2.19. Rejoicing is going on in heaven right now. Did you know that? The angels are rejoicing every time a sinner repents and turns and puts their faith in God. The angels rejoice. The crown of rejoicing. Revelation 21 says that every tear will be wiped away. There's no sadness in heaven. There's only rejoicing. It's like uh, your team goes undefeated. You know? You're always rejoicing. It's a great, it's, it's a wonderful time. The crown of life in Revelation 2.10. I believe this is reserved for those who suffer greatly in this life. Specifically those that suffer as they share the gospel. There's places in this world when you share the gospel you could be killed, martyred for your faith. And they will put on the crown of of life. And the fifth crown, the final crown, is the crown of glory. 1 Peter 5, 4 talks about it, because when you're justified, well, you spend the rest of your life being sanctified, proving that you're justified. Sanctified means to be holy. And you never really get there on this earth, do you? You're never 100% holy. You're always striving to be like Jesus. As he said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Strive for that perfection. But we still walk around in this sin suit, in this sinful world, don't we? It's hard. The flesh and the evil one. We talked about spiritual warfare a couple weeks ago. It's a battle. But someday we're going to go to be with the Lord and we're going to put on that imperishable body, our holy house, if you will. And and when we're in heaven, here's the amazing thing. There is no sun in heaven. There is no moon in heaven. Because God is light. God is light. It's like being in Alaska in the summer. It never gets dark. Because God is light. And you might remember when Moses came down from the mountain, he was in the presence of God. And because of God's glory, his face was shining so brightly, he had to put a veil over his face because the people couldn't look at him. Moses, jeez, cover up. That's what it's like for us in heaven, the crown of glory. We're like little light bulbs walking around. Because we're in the presence of him, and he is glory. That's why we sing glory to glory. All those crowns are for you if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's not all. There's rewards. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says to the church and to us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it was good or evil. We'll be judged as Christians for what we do with our time on this earth. Now, we usually think of rewards. And when I say judge, I mean we'll be rewarded. He says we'll be rewarded. There will be a reward for the good that you do. And for the bad you do, it just gets burned up. It just gets burned up like, you know, all material, all that stuff. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 3. But 
In heaven, there's not material rewards. Usually we think of rewards in terms of, you know, money, power, fame. Oh, you do a good job at work, you get rewarded with the promotion. You make a little extra money if you do a good job at work. Do a good job at home, kids, you get your allowance. You know, you get something. It's a reward. It's a financial thing. It's a monetary thing. But in heaven, there's, there's not, they don't have that. So what's the reward in heaven look like? You ever think about that? What reward is there in heaven? Well, I think the reward that we have in heaven is found in relationships. Because I think the answer, the meaning of life, if you will, is in our relationships. And I have proof for that. Um, I think you'll know if you really think about it, you enjoy life most when you have healthy relationships. When you're in a healthy relationship, it's a wonderful thing. With great relationships come great memories. I went to a basketball game this past week, a girls' basketball game, and um, I went to see uh, an old college teammate of mine. Uh, We played basketball together at Michigan Tech, and uh, his wife was there, and their daughter, who was a senior on the team, uh, I went to watch them. Now, it happened to be at Lakeview, and I got to watch uh, Mackenzie Stein light it up from three-point range, which was a lot of fun. Our own, uh, it was a nice, exciting game. But I sat with my longtime friends, known them over 20 years, and I heard them cheer on their daughter. And the whole time, it just brought back this, this sort of flood of memories. Because I was there when they first started dating. And I was there when they got married. And they had their kids. And we don't spend a lot of time together now because we kind of, you know, you, you end up going separate ways sometimes. But we came back, and it just was a wonderful time of of memories. And uh, it was special. It's what makes life special. When I hear people talk about heaven, they mostly talk about seeing their loved ones again, which confirms to me, which is the proof that life is about relationships. That's what matters the most. And I believe when you see people in heaven that you care about, that's a great reward. That's a great reward. And it's even a greater reward if you help them get to heaven. If you planted the seed, if you watered it. Because faith comes from hearing the truth about Jesus. You can't wish people into heaven. You can't pray a prayer and donate some money to get people into heaven. You have to tell them about Jesus now and help them walk with God. And when you do that, there's a reward in heaven. And that reward is that you were a part of that. And you get to celebrate that all for all time, for forever. But I think the greatest reward in heaven will be the times that you get to sit down with Jesus and enjoy the memories. The times that you trusted in him, when you followed him by faith, when he walked with you through the valley of the shadow of death, when he carried you on the beach like the Footprints poem. Who knows what stories Jesus will tell you, things you may have not even realized. Think about that. For all of eternity, what a reward that will be. And who knows what new memories that we'll get to make with Jesus in heaven. I know I want to go fishing with him. He knows where all the fish are. It's a no-brainer, best guide in the world. My wife wants to sing harmony with them. 
My daughter is going to bake cookies with him. My son's going to play a game with him. Any game, doesn't matter. You just play a game with Jesus. These are rewards in heaven. Because godly relationships never end. And that's a great reward. Jesus is coming back. Until he does, we need to make every day a life of purpose. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you so much. I pray, Lord, that, that we would be excited about the end. I pray, Father, that we would be ready, all times be ready. And, Lord, that we would get to work, and we would share our faith, and we would encourage others to put their faith in you. Because we want to see all those people that we love in heaven with you. We want to we spend time with them and, and share the memories with them. God, you are awesome. We love you and we thank you for revealing to us. It's not a mystery. Thank you, God, for showing us the way and the truth and the life. In Jesus' name. And everyone said,